The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. The Holy Spirit here tells us that the man who trusts in character, good works, or religion has fallen from grace. When you fall out of a window, you fall into the garden. When you fall from grace, you fall into law. You do not fall from grace by getting drunk. You fall from grace by believing in salvation by baptism, by Sabbath keeping, or by maintaining good works. Now, do not misunderstand. I'm not teaching that as long as you believe, you can do as you please. I'm teaching this opposite. The one who trusts in Christ alone will obey the Lord's ordinances. Over a half a century ago, the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Living by the Spirit. Today, Dr. Barnhouse focuses our attention on the fifth chapter of Galatians. What Paul denounced in his day is now running rampant in our world. What is it? Stay with us as we examine Paul's words to the church in Galatia about legalism. The scripture text for today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Galatians chapter 5. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with the message, Living by the Spirit. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy great grace, that thou hast made us free from the law, in order that we might be free from sin, and that we might be alive to thee, joying and rejoicing in thy salvation. Bless us now in this hour and use thy word to lift us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying in the epistle to the Galatians and come in the fifth chapter today in the first verse to what is the key verse to this epistle. Chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Everything that we've seen up to this point is directed to this climax of truth, and that which follows flows from it. Because salvation is by grace alone, because any other teaching is another gospel, a perversion, we are to turn away from anything that smells of legalism and rest in the triumphant work of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not do this, you are foolish and bewitched, as we saw in chapter 3. The revision has it, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's a hard word, but a true one. 
the life that consists of religious formalism and attempts to conform to a set of religious or moral standards is a life of slavery. Christ died to redeem us from religion as well as to redeem us from sin. Paul now proceeds to denounce the form of legalism which was typical of his generation. We read in verses 2 and 3, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now this is one of the most solemn passages in the Bible and is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied. Reduced to simple terms, the passage says that God will put a minus sign in front of Christ in your life if you put a plus sign in front of anything else as a factor in salvation. If you say that it's necessary to be circumcised in order to be saved, Christ shall profit you nothing. If you say that it's necessary to be baptized in order to be saved, Christ shall profit you nothing. And if you say that it is necessary to keep the Sabbath in order to be saved, Christ shall profit you nothing. If you say that you have to keep yourself in Christ and that it's possible for you to fall away and be lost, you have denied the fullness of the truth of Christ alone and you're in great spiritual danger. God so loves Christ that he will not allow anything else to be mentioned in the same breath with him. God will not allow anything to be put in the balances over against your sin as though Christ were not quite enough and that you must add something to him in order to move the scales to a proper balance. Once more, the principle is expressed which we have already seen in the third chapter. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so Paul testifies to every man who wishes to add anything whatsoever to Christ alone that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. God is simply stating that you must be saved by law alone, in which case you must be as perfect as God, or you must be saved by grace alone, in which case you abandon all for Christ and trust in him alone. The Holy Spirit here tells us that the man who trusts in character, good works, or religion has fallen from grace. And here is that misunderstood but misapplied text, you are fallen from grace. Some take it to mean that a man falls from grace by falling into sin. But this is just the opposite of what the Word of God teaches. When you fall out of a window, you fall into the garden. When you fall from grace, you fall into law. You do not fall from grace by getting drunk. You fall from grace by believing in salvation by baptism, by Sabbath-keeping, or by maintaining good works. Now, do not misunderstand. I'm not teaching antinomianism. I'm not teaching that as long as you believe you can do as you please. I'm teaching this opposite. The one who trusts in Christ alone will obey the Lord's ordinances about baptism and other religious forms. He'll keep all seven days of the week as unto the Lord, and he'll be careful to maintain good works. If we look at the lives of men in the Bible, we immediately discover that they did not fall from grace when they sinned. We might say that they fell into grace. 
Elsewhere, I've told in some detail the story of the British painter Burne Jones, whose little granddaughter was put into a corner for punishment. The next day, he came to the house and painted pictures on the wall, a kitten chasing its tail, birds flying, and so on. Thereafter, whenever the little girl was sent to the corner, she had something delightful to look at. And thus God works with his children. Abraham was God's man, saved and bound to God by a divinely made and sealed covenant. He got out of the will of the Lord and was willing to sacrifice his wife's honor to save his own skin. God put him into a corner. But then he painted pictures on his wall, the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. So were God's promises to him. Even at the moment of his farthest departure, his salvation was in the heart of God not in the weakness of his own nothingness. The same method of divine grace is to be found in the life patterns of almost all the men of God in the Bible. Jacob's very name means crook or swindler. He had to leave home to keep from being murdered because of his lying and cheating. But the Lord painted on his wall a ladder with angels ascending and descending, and Jacob heard the promise of God that he would be with him to bless him and protect him. And thus it was with Moses, the murderer and the fugitive, David, the adulterer and murderer, Peter, the denier. These men did not fall from grace by sinning. They fell into grace by their sinning. They fell into grace and were drawn to a closer walk with God, a more holy walk, because of a deeper knowledge of what they were in themselves. Oh, write this deep in your heart you certainly are not going to sin that grace may abound. But you certainly do not fall from grace by sinning. Falling from grace is falling into law. And if you remain in grace, you then have the power that makes it possible for you to live a holy life in God's way. Now we come to verses 5 and 6. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Now the true believer who understands that salvation is by grace, through faith, apart from any of the works of the law, will be motivated by the Holy Spirit's life within him. And this fact gives us the hope of personal righteousness. And thus, faith links our present life to the past where righteousness was provided for us in Christ, and to the future, where our hope is centered in Christ. The Christian life, therefore, is not legalism or unlegalism, not Sabbatarianism or non-Sabbatarianism, not baptism or non-baptism, but faith which works by love. Now we turn from verses 7 to 11. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey this truth? This persuasion comes not of him that calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubles you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he is. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would that they were even cut off which trouble you. Here Paul expresses wonder that those to whom he had preached and who had started off so well in the truth about grace, should be subverted to the false doctrine of Christ plus something else. 
Such a persuasion does not come from the living God who calls us. A little of such false doctrine can rot the whole Christian life. But, says Paul, I have confidence in you, divinely given confidence, that you have a fixed purpose in this matter and entertain no contrary thoughts. The one who teaches legalism, however, will suffer judgment. And if anyone has been trying to persuade them that Paul was of their opinion, the foolishness of such an idea can be seen by the fact that the circumcision party, the Jewish legalists, were persecuting Paul. Well, why were they persecuting him? Because he was preaching Christ alone. This is the offense of the cross. Paul then makes a play on the word circumcision, for he states that he wishes that those who taught legalism were cut off from the church. Now verse 13, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. The life of Christ is joyous freedom and complete liberty. But the fact that we have been freed from the law does not make us lawless. It rather calls us to more spiritual living. We are never to use our liberty as an opportunity or as an occasion for our flesh. Liberty is not to turn inward to self, but outward toward all our brethren. We are to love. Do not skip over verse 14 because it sounds familiar. It's the climax in the mounting development of thought. The Mosaic law was fulfilled by Christ, and thus we're removed from the bondage of the Mosaic law. But this is in order to make us fountains of love flowing forth to others, and thus fulfilling the law in ourselves. If we fail to do this, we're sucked into the vacuum of biting and devouring the souls of others, and we ourselves will be hurt in the process. Now verse 16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is not a maybe or a perhaps. It is a flat statement. Walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. God has made provision for us to walk in the Holy Spirit, and this excludes half interpretations. If you are walking in Philadelphia, you can't be walking in Los Angeles. And so in the spiritual realm, a believer cannot be in two places at the same time. Don't caress your fleshly nature by arguing the matter. If you're walking in the flesh, you are not walking in the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now verse 17, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Our flesh pulls us toward its desires. The Holy Spirit draws us toward righteousness and peace and joy in God. But be absolutely sure that since the Holy Spirit draws you to himself, you are not under law. For this is another flat statement that will not leave room for argument. 
which shows that legalism is a fleshly thing. Anyone who is led by the Holy Spirit is immediately led away from the law, and the life of that believer becomes the life of love. Now verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, immorality, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've told you also in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All these horrible things were forbidden by the old law, and yet the law itself is now added to the list. To the spiritual man, the law has become as great an enemy as the sins it forbids, for the law can never overcome. Victory over sin is won only by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need not spend time here to describe the individual sins that are named. The Holy Spirit says that they're manifest. Anyone can recognize a flagrant breach of righteousness. But be sure you put among these manifest horrors the greatest horror of them all, the law as a way of righteousness. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now this boundary line between flesh and spirit is real, even though it is tenuous. In Europe, some landholders have fields which are half in one country and half in another. There are even houses where the frontier runs through the middle, with some rooms in one country and some rooms in another. The life of the believer in Christ bears a faint resemblance to this. When we are saved, we're not taken over a frontier to such a distance that the sights and the sounds of our previous dwelling place are gone forever. We carry the treasure of the new life in earthen vessels. The glory of the Christian victory is that the fruit of the Spirit is grown in us while we live in these two evil places. For the Christian life is to be lived in two dirty places, the life that I now live in the flesh, and Christ said we live in the world. But even though we are in the body and grown in these present circumstances, we can turn our back upon the world and the flesh and experience present triumph. Now we must note that our text does not say that the fruits, plural, of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, and so on. We read the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Here is a spiritual mistake in grammar which God planned and which is very revealing and which was certainly designed by God. I cannot say that the fruit of California is oranges, melons, peaches, prunes, apples, berries, etc. I must say that the fruits of California are all these delicacies. But I may correctly say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. The Bible does not say that the Spirit will grow love in one believer, joy in another believer, and peace in still another. All of this fruit is in one cluster. 
It is introduced by love and it's carried all the way through to self-control. It's very unfortunate that the King James Version renders the ninth fruit of this cluster as temperance, for the Greek is self-control, a word which expresses the idea of great self-restraint, the holding in of our lusts and desires. If this fruit is not growing in your life, you need to search your heart to make sure that you're not deceiving yourself. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. The opening word, if, if we live in the Spirit, is not a word of doubt, but the recognition of the great reality. You have believed in Christ, you have been justified, you have learned the nature of your evil nature, you have surrendered to Christ to have the flesh crucified, you have done these things, and they're in the past tense of spiritual experience. Since all this is so, and we have delivered the flesh over for crucifixion death, let us then walk in the Spirit. The American Standard Version translates it best, if we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit let us also walk. It is emphatic. Our life is in God. It must therefore become a godly life. It's interesting to note that the word walk in verse 26 is from a different Greek word than the word walk in verse 16. In verse 16, it means to walk around in order to be seen to advantage from every angle. But the word walk in verse 26 is a military term which could be translated, let us be on the alert, let us be on the qui vive, let us be on the line, ready to go, ready to walk for him. And lest we think that we have the whole matter settled by some fancied second work of grace, we're brought up sharply with the reality of the continuing presence of the flesh. For this verse declares in effect, down with self-conceit down with provoking one another, down with envy. How are we to walk, to be alert, to be on the line, to be on the qui vive? Next week in our last study of the Galatian epistle, Paul will spell out the steps of our daily walk in Christ. And our God and Father, we ask thee that the Holy Spirit may bless this truth to each heart. Lord God, free us indeed from any idea that we can save ourselves or keep ourselves saved, but rather let us bask in the fullness of the sunlight of thy love and grace and know that thou hast loved us, thou hast saved us, thou dost keep us, and thou art ever lifting our faces to Christ and causing us to grow in him and to walk in him. May we stand fast in this liberty wherein thou hast made us free and not be again tangled in this bondage of slavery. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Remember, you were still flesh, so you must daily put down self-centeredness and self-conceit and seek to live by the power of the Spirit. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled Living by the Spirit. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Living by the Spirit or simply request message number Q112. We would also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled Death Swallowed Up in Victory. In this four-chapter booklet, Dr. Barnhouse answers such questions as, What happens the moment you die? Where are the dead right now? Is there such a thing as soul sleep? These and many other questions on the subject of death are addressed with biblical insights. Ask for a free copy for yourself or to share with a friend who is going through bereavement or struggling with the issues of death. Ask for your free copy of Death Swallowed Up in Victory when you call or write. Also, when you call or write, be sure and request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's books and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or if you would like to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.